0: Coming to comic book newsstands on October 1976. In the upcoming issue of Hawkman, the winged wonder uses science from the future and weapons from the past to battle crime in the present, and then becomes confused. In the next issue of Hercules Unbound, by popular demand, Wonder Woman guest stars in a story in which Hercules has to retake his legendary trials by stealing the amazing Amazon's magic girdle. Don't miss Wonder Woman Unbound. in the next exciting issue of All-Star Comics. It's a special character introspective spotlight, as Robin tries to figure out if he is still a member of the Super Squad. Power Girl and Star-Spangled Kid try to figure out if they are in the Super Squad or the Justice Society of America, or both. Stripesy tries to figure out if the Star-Spangled Kid is still his partner, and if they still belong to the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Green Arrow pops in to wonder if he belongs to the Seven Soldiers of Victory or the Justice League of America. Speedy joins him to query whether he's a Seven Soldier of Victory or a Teen Titan. Kid Flash joins in wondering why Speedy has a name that better suits Kid Flash. The Flash enters carrying Starman, who wonders if the Star-Spangled Kid has replaced him in the Justice Society of America, and dreads the thought of what will happen when Starboy grows up and becomes Starman. Will he then be in the Legion of Superheroes, the Justice Society of America, the Super Squad, or a replacement for the Star-Spangled Kid in the Seven Soldiers of Victory? Just then, in walk every Earth's versions of Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Wildcat, and the Spectre. And then the fun really begins. Don't miss it. In a brand new Freedom Fighters adventure... A famed 1950s psychiatrist has his car stolen by juvenile delinquents who read comic books. Feeling responsible, the Freedom Fighters build him a new one. Uncle Sam makes the frame. The black condor adds the tires. The ray gets the engine. The human bomb brings the trunk. And the phantom lady supplies the headlights. Don't miss the all-new Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing returns, greater than ever before. This issue reintroduces us to Alec Holland and presents Kid Swamp Thing, The Swamp Mobile, The Incredible Thingarang, Lady Swamp Thing, Archfoe Sir Francis Marion, and Guest Stars Sugar and Spike. On sale in October 1976 from DC Comics. Look for the new DC Bullet logo at newsstands everywhere. And now, Professor Zoom Productions... In association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure. Fire and Water presents The Amazing World of DC Comics. Hosted by Zoom Yukonori. Featuring the works of Michael Uslan, Tony Isabella, Mark Evanier, and Anthony Tolan. Greetings and welcome to another episode of FW Presents, the anthology series of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Zoom Yukonori, and this is another installment of my showcase of the amazing world of DC Comics a mail-order fan magazine published by D.C. back in the mid to late 1970s, when they were still known as National Periodical Publications. As stated in the first installment of Amazing World, released on May 18, 2017, the idea of producing this fanzine was conceived by then-D.C. Comics production manager Saul Harrison who assigned Bob Rosakis to oversee the fanzine's development. Mr. Rosakis, as many of you know, was a long-time comic book fan before he was a long-time comic book professional, and the rest of the editorial staff for Amazing World comprised of other young DC Comics fans turned pros through the production of this publication as well as other DC Comics work. Together, they were fondly referred to in the magazine as the Junior Woodchucks. This nickname was created by Mr. Rosakis initially as a joke, a sly reference to Carl Barks' Walt Disney comics, but it later became their somewhat official designation within the fanzine. The Woodchucks included people who would later be well-recognized comic book industry names, including Carl Gafford, Mike Gold, Paul Levitz, Jack C. Harris, and Michael Uslan, as well as stalwart contributors E. Nelson Bridwell, Mark Evanier, Tony Isabella, Neil Posner, and Mark Grunewald. Lasting for 17 issues, published from July 1974 to April 1978, This fanzine featured 48 black-and-white pages featuring DC Comics-related news and listings of upcoming DC comic book issues, plus exclusive interviews, retrospectives, and behind-the-scenes information about the DC Comics operations, plus humorous bits, unpublished comic book stories, and unused cover art, as well as text pieces featuring the fan-beloved nuanced details about our favorite DC Comics characters as well as somewhat obscure ones, as you will hear later on. And to be clear, this was 48 pages of heavyweight white paper with a finished size of 8.5 by 11 inches, wrapped by a beautiful full-color heavy stock cover. And all of this was available to fans willing to mar their precious DC comic by clipping out the mail-order coupon, as well as pay $1.50 per issue, and I believe that price also included the shipping in a flat cardboard mailer. As was done in the first installment of The Amazing World of DC Comics, this show will comprise of selected readings of my favorite articles and text pieces from throughout the entire run, rather than a full page-by-page review and critique of a single issue and its contents. I do plan to post these articles on a gallery page associated with this podcast on fireandwaterpodcast.com. So let us begin with a somewhat quirky feature in The Amazing World of DC Comics, Issue 5, cover dated March to April of 1975 and was released in April of 1975. Because this was a direct mail-order publication, the cover date lined up with the actual distribution date. Meanwhile, the DC Comics themselves had a cover date that was two months ahead of the actual date because that served as the pull date to tell the news dealer when to remove unsold stock from the newsstands. The inclusion of this first piece was inspired by my admiration of the surprisingly enjoyable Justice League action cartoon series on Cartoon Network, and one of the most obscure breakout characters, Space Cabbie. Created by Captain Marvel scribe Otto Binder, Space Cabbie had originally appeared in almost two dozen short stories in the DC Comics science fiction anthology series, Mystery in Space published in the years 1954 to 1958. He was essentially a typical or perhaps stereotypical down-on-his-luck taxicab driver of the day, but in, in space. space. As well as exactly 200 years in the future. On Justice League Action, Space Cabby lived in the present day, but he was still a down-on-his-luck cab driver in, in space. space. He was also a charming and very human character, brilliantly voiced by Patton Oswalt. Space Cabby was a self-confessed superhero fanboy who was always willing to step up and lend a hand, and his services, to the Justice League, for an honest fare, and hopefully a superhero selfie. In his few appearances on Justice League Action, Space Cabby had also shown to be quite resourceful and at times heroic himself, as well as have a lot of hot. However, my first exposure to the Space cabby concept was in a retrospective piece written by Tony Isabella for The Amazing World of DC Comics Issue 5. This is actually one of Mr. Isabella's first written works for DC Comics, which was essentially his response to a letter from a comic book reader who was a tad nitpicky in regards to a 1955 Space Cabbie tale that was reprinted in a then-recent DC Comics sci-fi book. Follow That Space Cabbie! A personal look at the six to eight pages of fun, fun, fun adventures of the one and only... Space Cabby by Tony Isabella. I had been writing for a good many years now, friends. Since that first story, fame has followed me like a faithful puppy that hasn't been housebroken. I've written for all kinds of publications. School newspapers, underground newspapers, overground newspapers, matchbooks, humor magazines, fanzines... Political journals, gardening weeklies, comics, and finally, through no fault of my own, the amazing world of DC Comics. The above, by the way, is called a vamp till ready. It's normally used to denote the music the orchestra plays until a singer is ready to start singing. In this particular instance, it means the copy used to put you, the reader, at ease while the writer... Me gets ready to do his stuff. Ready. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the DC science fiction comics. They couldn't possibly compete with the science fiction comics E.C. had produced a few years earlier, but they hung in there. They didn't have Bill Gaines, Al Feldstein, or some of the best artists ever to ply their trade in comics. What DC had was a handful of science fiction writers, few of which had contributed much to comics, with the exception of Otto, Adam Link Binder, and Edmund, Star Kings Hamilton, and a bunch of artists who drew the comics like they were afraid they'd give their readers heart attacks if they ever drew an exciting scene. Some of these artists would later master the mechanics of storytelling and turn out excellent, and in some cases extremely innovative work, but in the beginning, it was a seemingly endless parade of headshots and stiff figures. What made these early DC science fiction comics interesting was the willingness of the editors, writers, and artists to totally suspend any known law of science at the drop of a pen point. I remember these stories with fondness, like the one I recently had an opportunity to reread, Mystery in Space No. 42's. Secret of the Skyscraper Spaceship, in which the Empire State Building is turned into a spaceship to land an army on Mars. Freaky, huh? But that story is typical of the DC science fiction comics of the period, which comic fanatics like myself devoured whenever we could get our hands on them. One of my favorite strips from the DC science fiction comics is the much-maligned Space Cabbie Stories, written by the late and sorely missed Otto binder When editor Julie Schwartz reprinted one of the stories in Strange Adventures number 219, Space Flight to Danger, originally presented in Mystery in Space number 28, the reader response was far from encouraging, as typified by the comments of one L.O. Seer. There can exist no story as inane, asinine, and senseless as this, with such utter disregard for physical and spatial laws and future culture possibilities. It's true that a comic magazine science fiction yarn will not resemble the works of a Heinlein or Asimov, but still, some semblance to reality must be maintained. Why? Why should we concern ourselves with relatively unimportant elements like scientific laws and the philosophy of future cultures when reading the space cabbie stories? That's not where the cabbie was at. The tales he appeared in were primarily human interest stories. If the science was weak, so what? The characterization of the space cabbie, and his co-stars, never was. I think our reader and other detractors miss this. The space cabbie is the eternal little guy. He works pretty hard to make ends meet, but they never quite do. He's the future edition of the cab driver of 1975. He's given to commenting on a number of things. The emptiness of his wallet, the rising cost of living, the dullness of the space freeway, and every movie his favorite actor ever made. He's probably delivered a baby or two in his time, when he couldn't get an expectant mother to the Galaxy Metro Hospital in time. Editor Schwartz later reprinted the first of the Space Cabby's exploits in From Beyond the Unknown, number 18, The Hitchhiker of Space, originally from Mystery in Space, number 24, February to March, 1955. The cabbie's hack is stolen, and he must hitchhike to Jupiter to get it back. Hardly the stuff of Hugo Awards, but a very human thing to happen to a comics mag hero. He even shows that touch of larceny that exists in us all when he tries to stow away on a ship to save himself the bother of waiting around for a lift. That premiere appearance, written by Ed Heron and drawn by Howard Sherman, got a favorable response somewhere along the line, and became the first in a series of space cabbie stories. The cabbie reappeared in Mystery in Space No. 26, June-July 1955, and was now written by Binder and drawn by Gil Kane and inked by Bernie Sachs. The permanent art team on the series... Except for the occasional ink jobs by Joe Giella and the three stories drawn entirely by Bernie Sachs for the Cabby's regular series in Mystery in Space until his last appearance in number forty seven, October nineteen fifty-eight. The Space Cabby often found himself the innocent victim of both circumstance and plot. In both Menace of the Space Nectar, Mystery in Space number forty three, and Riddle of the Glowing Space Cabby, Mystery in Space No. 44, an aspect of the cabbie is the focus of the story. In the first, a metabolic craving for a new flavor, space nectar, nearly drives the cabbie to bankruptcy, but not before a gang of crooks kidnap him at ray gunpoint and force him to help them locate a cachet of stolen goods hidden somewhere near a space nectar plant. In the latter story, our interplanetary hack experiences a dizzying glow effect whenever he leaves his cab. As a result, he becomes a virtual prisoner in his cab, living, sleeping, and eating in it until a hold-up artist sticks him up for his space credit earnings. The monotony of the space through was the subject of another space cabby adventure, Follow the Space Leader, in Mystery in Space number 42. February to March, 1958. Closed fist on his cheek in boredom, the cabbie complains to his passenger. No meteors to avoid, no jammed space intersections, not even a billboard to see. I can hardly keep awake, oh hum. Even his passenger is yawning. Later in the story, the cabbie is forced to lead escaping robbers through the old unmonotonous spaceways his inspired schemes to alert the police include a horrible rendition of a well known space ditty with certain words altered. But how many cabbies have you met that can carry a tune? Right. Aren't you glad you can't hear comics? One of my favorite tales has to be Search for a Star, Mystery in Space, number 46, September 1958, in which the cabby gets to meet his favorite actor. Jacques Bruce. In this fast-moving story, we get a character study of Jacques Bruce, middle-aged swashbuckler trying to recapture a youth that is no longer his. In a unique change of pace, the space cabbie transcends his little guy role to convince Jacques that his acting ability was every bit as big a drawing card as his spectacular movie stunts. The actor begins a second film career as a character actor and wins an Oscar. The Cabby's reward? Great new movies to see starring his favorite actor, Jacques Bruce. Each story was resolved by the Cabby's own ingenuity, and therein hangs the true joy of the series, his humanness. Between the Cabby's narrative captions and his own quick wits and humor, we readers were treated to a refreshing character. The stories were also highly noted for the numerous futuristic versions of modern-day life, like movie theaters on floating asteroids, tunnels through entire planets, space garage repairmen, and even space drive-in diners with space-suited hops. Whether the cabbie was worrying about a decline in tips or how to get his hack repaired cheaply, his adventures were always more than welcome in my home. It's my fondest hope that more of these stories will be reprinted. We can learn from what has gone before, people. In one respect, I must admit, that reader was right. There could have been a touch more realism in one aspect of the Space cabby stories. In the entire series, not once did I hear the cabbie utter a single word of profanity? A hack driver who doesn't curse other drivers to the heavens? Now that's too fantastic. You've been listening to Follow That Space Cabbie from the Amazing World of DC Comics Issue 5. Mr. Tony Isabella's rebuttal to a fan letter written by Frank Rizzo from Athens, Ohio, which was printed in the letter column of Strange Adventures, Volume 1, Issue 221, which complained about the scientific implausibility of a 1955 Space cabby story reprinted in Issue 219. The editorial response to said letter stated that Strange Adventures would, quote, Refrain from hailing Space Cabby again, in compliance with our readers' non-request for more stories. I presume that editorial response was what had prompted Tony Isabella to craft his own response for this piece in Amazing World. And as you had just heard, Mr. Isabella's rebuttal to Frank Rizzo showcased the same human appeal of the Space Cabby character that was brilliantly captured in the Justice League Action Programme albeit transferring the cabbie's fandom of movie star Jack Bruce to superheroes. This retrospective rebuttal was framed by panels of an all-new, pre-Silver Age space cabbie adventure, in which the cabbie, thinking he was performing a bizarre test from a space taxi inspector, was actually helping a police inspector stop a gang of crooks fleeing in another space cab. And in doing so, the cabbie received a citation from the police officer that enabled him to forego having to take the actual inspection. And yes, I realize the term all-new pre-Silver Age adventure sounded like a contradiction, but it was still true, for this space cabbie story printed with this Amazing World article was constructed from 17 panels selected from various 1950s space cabbie stories printed in Volume 1 of Mystery in Space with new captions and dialogue to tell, well, an all-new adventure, which I presume was scripted by Tony Isabella. It was actually quite a clever visual device, even though some character features and art styles would change a bit from panel to panel. Listeners to my previous spotlight on The Amazing World of DC Comics may recall that Issue 5 was the Sheldon Mayer issue that introduced me to his brilliantly unique creations, Sugar and Spike. That introduction prompted me to take time during my next visit to Uncle Kenzo to read his Sugar and Spike comics. I actually took some time during that visit to read my uncle's copies of Mystery in Space with the Space Cabbie stories as well. And it was then that my uncle pointed out that Mr. Isabella was incorrect in his Amazing World article in regards to the first space cabbie story. The Hitchhiker in Space, from Mystery in Space, Volume 1, Issue 24, was actually the second space cabbie tale. The first was published three issues earlier, in Mystery of Space, Volume 1, Issue 21, which was simply titled, Space Taxi. This story was written by Otto Binder and illustrated by Howard Sherman, and featured a Martian named Vugga who invented a special suit that made him invisible. This would still be a year before a more famous Martian, John Jones, who had a natural power of invisibility, would make his debut in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 225. Vugga used his invisibility suit to stiff space cabby of his fare for taking him to the moon of Titan. This prompted the space cabby to track Vaught down to get his money, finding out in the process that Vaught was also a mystery thief who had been using his invisibility suit to commit robberies on the various moons of Saturn, easily stowing away on ships to make his getaway. Because the Interplanetary Police did not believe the Space Cabby's explanation of the Invisible Thief, Space Cabby decided to capture Vought himself. Figuring out the pattern to Vought's robberies, Space Cabby managed to use his cab as a convenient escape vehicle for Vought's next heist and easily captured the Invisible Crook. He also managed to get his stiffed fare, and realized that he had spent ten times as much money in rocket fuel and the lost fares and trips while tracking Vought down. Fortunately, the capture of the Saturn moon thief came with a hefty reward, so Space Cabby came out ahead after all. Let us take a brief podcast promo break, and when we return... I'll showcase a tribute to one of DC's longest-running humor features that ran through the twilight of comics' golden age. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin, the new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detectives' greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Rachel al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman Vs. The Man Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface Three and the Ventriloquist. Plus, more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novik. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. beginning in 2018 the who's who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the loose leaf editions featuring superman by jerry ordway the joker by brian bolland wonder woman by george perez sandman by mike dringenberg badman by norm Brayfogel. the jli by adam hughes Eclipso by Bart Sears The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen Dark Stars by Travis Charest Lobo by Simon Bisley Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me Doom Patrol by Richard Case (sighs) I'm so confused And many more the Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994. Time is under threat. And history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie in by tie in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember Legion. Welcome back to the amazing world of DC Comics. And now we will take a look at what was known as the incredible, unpredictable 13th issue with more than half of the pages devoted to the wacky aspects of DC Comics lore, including an extensive interview with various imps and comic relief characters such as Mr. Mix's Pitalik, Batmite, Quisp, Mara, and Woozy Winks, a history of bizarro world, two unpublished stories originally created for DC's parody humor comic titled Plop, and a feature called Short Circuits which was a four-page lampoon of their Direct Currents feature that announced upcoming DC Comics. This parody included fake announcement blurbs that poked fun at DC's regular titles and characters, and some paraphrased examples of these blurbs had opened this podcast. Short Circuits also added ludicrous non-existent title concepts including an ongoing Man-Bat reprint series which would repeat the only two Man-Bat stories ever published at the time over and over and over, as well as a new team book of DC martial arts characters opening an eatery called Kung Fu Deli, and my personal favorite, a new fork and saucery title called Slaw the Uneatable, featuring a barbaric side dish. The short circuits feature was credited to junior woodchuck Michael Uslan, but I would not be surprised if some jokes were contributed by other contributors of this issue of Amazing World. And given one particular contributor's pronounced dislike for coleslaw, I would suspect Slaw the Uneatable was the brainchild of polytypic writer Mark Evanier who also wrote the following article about D.C.'s longest-running funny animal feature. The War Between the Fox and the Crow by Mark Evanier There was a time when to be a comic book fan meant to be a superhero fan. Nothing else mattered. Back when the first Brave and Bold Hawkman came out, I can recall hordes of irate fans because it was drawn by one of those war comic artists, fellow named Kubert, and not by an artist of fan-accepted superhero style. In fact, back in our old comic book club, The President, fellow named Ebeneur, was the only person around who'd even read war comics or ghost comics or even funny animal comics. The aforementioned sentiment is behind us. Comic fans now appreciate all genres of the art form, even, most recently, those funny animal comics. Look at the going price of old Disneys, especially those by Carl Barks, if you have doubts. Barks was the man behind the best Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics, also the creator of the latter, along with the real Junior Woodchucks. There were good funny animal comics done by other men as well. Some were done at DC by men like Sheldon Mayer and Howie Post. In fact, one of the best funny animal strips done anywhere was published by National Periodicals. And I am of the mind that when the history of comics is written, Long after we have all departed this pollution-locked planet, the Fox and the Crow will be singled out as a feature, fully the equal in quality of Superman, Batman, Justice League. Name any strip you please, and, in its own way, that which chronicled the exploits of Fauntleroy F. Fox and Crawford C. Crow is worthy to stand beside it. You see, disbelievers among you, comics can tell almost any kind of story, and they are as good, or bad, as the story being told. The recent mass rediscovery of Disney, Bugs Bunny, and the like proves that fans have come to realize that comics can do more than depict knock’em down beat’em-up heroics. Comics can also be funny. And above all else, the Fox and the Crow was a funny, funny strip. It all began as an animated cartoon directed by Frank Tashlin in 1941. Tashlin, a man of enormous talent, was dubbed the human yo-yo by his peers because of the way he bounced back and forth between various careers, mainly in animation or newspaper cartooning. Later, he would become a writer on the last few Marx Brothers films, and, in the 50s and 60s, a director of movies starring folks like Jerry Lewis and Doris Day. But 1941 found him doing a brief hitch at the Columbia Cartoon Studio, a studio that was in deep trouble. At the time, it was the custom for each major film studio to have a cartoon department, either owned by the studio or affiliated with it. The cartoons, done on a far better basis than today's television cartoons, were generally released in tandem with the studio's feature films. Warner Brothers had the Leon Schlesinger Studio, Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, et al. Universal had the Walter Lance Studio, and so forth. Columbia Studios, run by Harry Cohn, had a cartoon studio that, in its ten-year history, had been unable to come up with a single bona fide star character. Cone was one of Hollywood's most colorful figures, a gruff, earthy man whose language would melt a Comics Code seal. By 1941, he was impatient. He wanted a cartoon star like Warner's Bugs Bunny or Paramount's Popeye, and he wanted it soon. Tashlin had directed a cartoon named after, and patterned after, the hoary Aesop's fable, The Fox and the Grapes. It was at least the third animated version of the fable about the fox, the crow, and the sour grapes. It was also the best. Cone, anxious for his star and aware of a good audience reception to the cartoon, decreed that more fox and crow cartoons be made. What Cone wanted... Cone got. As it happens, the subsequent cartoons were quite good. A strike at Disney Studios had sent some fine craftsmen to Columbia, and the cartoons were technically well made. Most involved the two characters chasing each other around for the full six minutes. For example, a typical entry, Phony Baloney, had the two friendly enemies each thinking the other to be a wanted criminal. In search of the supposed reward, they chased each other around, back and forth, forth and back, with rather amusing results. More than a dozen cartoons were made, directed by Bob Wickersham after Tashlin departed for other work. But while the cartoons were well-made and somewhat funny, it eventually became apparent that The Fox and the Crow did not possess star quality. Nor did another Columbia series, Cheeto and his burrito, nor another cat and dog chase series that eventually came to be named Flippity and Flop. In 1948, Cohn closed down his cartoon department and began releasing the product of a new experimental cartoon studio, UPA. The change turned out to be good for Columbia. UPA quickly came up with a star in the person of Mr. Magoo. In the meantime, Though their cartoons had met with only limited success, The Fox and Crow and other short-lived Columbia features had made it to the pages of DC Comics. Late in 1944, DC's editorial director, Whitney Ellsworth, had journeyed to California in search of an animation property for some funny comics to supplement DC's line of superheroes. The pickings weren't just slim, they were downright emaciated. The Disney characters, the Warner Brothers characters, the Walter Lance characters, all these were licensed to Dell Publishing, and the remaining characters were contracted to other comic houses. Ellsworth took what was available, the Columbia characters, and headed back for New York, licensing contract in hand. In the spring of 1945, the first real-screen funnies hit the stands, featuring characters from Columbia cartoons. On the cover, one fox and one crow. The most important man in the History of the Fox and Crow feature is James F. Davis. Davis was an animator. He worked for a time for Max Fleischer on the classic Superman cartoons. And in 1943, he migrated to Los Angeles and began working for Columbia, along with a former Disney storyman named Cecil Beard, in 1944, Davis began organizing a shop of moonlighting animation artists from various studios to produce comic book stories for a New York publisher, Ben Sangor. Sangor's comic book company was affiliated with DC, and so, when Real Screen began, it was arranged that it be produced by Davis's staff. Various animation writers pitched in on the stories, and for the first few years, The Fox and Crow stories were drawn by the cartoon's director, Bob Wickersham. When Wickersham left in '48, Davis moved up to assume the art on the lead feature, little suspecting it was the start of a 20-year labor. Despite the failure of the cartoons, the comic book remained popular, and in 1951, a Fox and Crow comic book was added to the DC line. By this time... Hubert Karp had emerged as the writer of most of Columbia-based comics, and he set the format for the Fox and Crow adventures. Stories were usually confined to one locale, an area where resided a very rich but dumb fox in his quaint cabin, next to a boorish but crafty crow. The crow lived in an eyesore of a tree, surrounded by junk, and avoided all forms of labor by mooching food, money, what have you, from the gullible fox. To this end, the crow employed a variety of disguises, schemes, little fibs, big lies, anything to prey on the fox's vanity and naivete. Carp died in 1953. Davis began to handle the stories with the aid of Cecil Beard, who had been called in to help with the artwork. Shortly thereafter, Beard assumed the writing duties, along with his wife and collaborator, Alpine Harper. Says Beard of this assignment, We sometimes had a rough time getting the work out. We would be rolling on the floor in hysterics over some preposterous situation that the characters themselves seemed to develop. The personalities of the fox and the crow are absolute opposites. Real Screen Funnies was called Real Screen Comics, as of number two, and then TV Screen Cartoons toward the end of its run. It finally ended in 1960, after 136 issues of The Fox and Crow, Flippity and Flop, and Tito and His Burrito. About this time, a Flippity and Flop comic book, which had begun in 1952, produced by the same creative team, drew to a close. The Fox and the Crow comic book continued on. Apart from a brief period in 1956 when Davis was occupied with outside projects, Owen Fitzgerald and Karen Wright filled in, the same team, Beard and Spouse on scripts, Davis on art, stayed with the feature. They produced hundreds of Fox and Crow stories in a longevity record that, as far as I can tell, remains unsurpassed in the industry. For most of the time, they were under the supervision of Lawrence Nadel, the DC editor assigned to oversee this madness. And it was madness. When Jim Davis drew the stuff, recalls Cecil Beard, he was the character he was illustrating, unconsciously mimicking each character as he drew it. Beard recalls Nadel as the answer to a cartoonist's prayer, in that he usually left them alone making gripes when necessary and only to be constructive. One constant criticism Natal did have was that Beard and Davis tended to dwell too much on stories involving food, and Natal usually had to jubble around stories between issues to achieve some semblance of balance. After Natal died, Murray Boltanoff took over the supervision chores and eventually began an overhaul of the book. Feeling, perhaps, that after several hundred stories, the fox and the crow were getting tired, editor Boltonoff introduced some new co-features, the Bratfinks, about brother and sister juvenile delinquent mice, and Stanley and his monster, about a lisping little boy and his pet, a shaggy creature. Eventually, the Bratfinks was dropped, and Stanley got co-billing on the covers with the fox and crow. Slowly, but certainly, the two warring animals were being squeezed out of their book. And sure enough, as of number 109 in 1968, the comic contained neither hide nor hair, neither fur nor feather, of the fox and the crow. It was just Stanley and his monster. And five issues later, the comic succumbed completely. Every so often... When I get together with other folks in this business, other writers like myself, I hear someone, no names please, remark that there is nothing new. We've done every kind of superhero story that can be done, they say. Or perhaps they say it about ghost stories or war stories. That's generally reason enough for me to clear my throat, command attention, and say, Do you know how many stories were done of the fox and the crow? Do you know how many different stories they came up with, using just one fox, one crow, and rarely even a change of setting? Do you know the kind of ingenuity and brilliance went into that strip? And do you know how many laughs people got out of them? It does give one pause to think. There were hundreds and hundreds of fox and crow stories done, none of them quite like any other. And as for the quantity of laughs they wrought, well, that must number well into the billions. That was The War Between the Fox and the Crow, Mark Evanier's celebration of DC's most prolific funny animal series, Published in the Amazing World of DC Comics, issue 13. Similar to the Space Cabby feature I had covered earlier, this retrospective was framed by a 12 panel Fox and Crow comic strip sequence in which Fauntleroy Fox believed he finally had the upper hand on Crawford Crow, having access to all of their comic book stories, and can thus look up every single one of the Crow's schemes to chisel Fox out of money or food. Or both. And despite this, the Crow still managed to swindle the Fox out of $10 in the end. These 12 panels were actually a truncated version of a 46 panel Fox and Crow story published in Real Screen Comics issue 42, cover dated September of 1951. And seeing the very large stack of Fox and Crow comics the Fox was carrying around, This was a very apt way to illustrate the point of Mr. Evanier's article, the vast proliferation of stories featuring these funny, friendly enemies. In fact, it should be pointed out that, in addition to their self-titled series and real-screen comics, previously titled Real Screen Funnies and later titled TV Screen Cartoons, mentioned by Mr. Evanier, The Fox and the Crow also had a regular feature in a third DC title, Comic Cavalcade, starting from issue 30 in 1948 to the end of the run with issue 63 in 1954. What's more, from October 1951 to April 1954, all three of these Fox and Crow comic titles were being published simultaneously, with every story illustrated by James F. Davis incredible. Let us take another podcast promo break before I delve into another mail order project DC had developed for their fans. podcast network is a collection of super friends plus shag so what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends it's for all mankind a super friends podcast a read-through show about the classic dc comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run plus a few surprises hosted by me rob kelly and a rotating group of my super friends coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it all looks good to me It began with the origin of his comic book fandom. This is the very first comic book I have ever read, and also ignited the spark of my comic book collecting over the course of a 1974 weekend. Professor Zoom Yukinori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. Balance of Power, Have Horse... Will fly. Solomon Grundy wins on a Monday. Superman's unbeatable rival. Green Lantern, master criminal of the 25th century. With unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Call me Terror Man. Solomon Grundy am co-host this time. I am Lenos, the, the Lexical archive, archive of, of minutia, minutia, Expositions, and Origins. Goodbye, me and Bizarro. So I, I am, am Libra. Libra. This is Aya from the Green Lantern. It is I, the Reverse Flash. Which had ended with the destruction of the universe. Or has it... Warrant tunduration are we? I regret to say that you are my prisoner. Without our interspatial time conveyor, we are all essentially trapped here. Can't summon the willpower necessary for my power ring to pull me free. For nearly two decades, I had carried her ghost within my heart. Experience the wonder. Great wings of mercury. Of an all new season. Solomon Grundy, fat, little, pointy-eared man before. Let us get back to the story, shall we? Down, down, and approach. Of the Dunn & One Wonders Podcast, Podcast Wonder, Wonder Show. Show. Only on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Allow me, Entity Terror Man. That does it. Ain't messing with no timing lines ever again. Welcome back to FW Presents The Amazing World of DC Comics. This next piece is from issue 8, cover dated September to October of 1975, which was a spotlight issue on longtime DC Comics artist Carmine Infantino, who was then president and publisher of National Periodical Publications. However, my selection from this issue is actually one of the few pieces that was not devoted to Mr. Infantino's work but a retrospective by Anthony Toland which explored the history of all of the exclusive fan clubs organized by DC Comics, at least up until the time of this publication. Badges, buttons, and secret codes, too. Just 10 cents to cover postage and handling. By Anthony Toland the opportunity of a lifetime. Here's that special free offer you've been waiting for. You too can become a member of what is destined to be one of the largest organizations of its kind in this country, a club in which you, as a loyal and patriotic American, can do your share in bringing our war against the Axis to a glorious and victorious end. Please enroll me as a charter member I enclose 10 cents to cover cost of mailing. It is understood that I am to receive my membership, certificate, button, and code. A vividly colored certificate of membership, suitable for framing. A brand new full color membership button, be the first on your block and a secret code that enables you to read the secret messages in every issue of your favorite comics. These were the food that fired thousands of childhood imaginations. The cost? A thin dime. A bargain even in those pre-inflation days of the 30s and 40s. But then again, comic books were still 64 pages for that dime. Also the cost of a Saturday night matinee at the local movie house complete with an action-packed serial. It was the age of Little Orphan Annie Ovaltine mugs and Captain Midnight's Secret Squadron codographs, of Tom Mix's straight-shooting six-shooters and Buck Rogers' rings that glowed in the dark. Radio listeners still chilled as Orson Welles queried, Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? And thrilled as Bud Collier proclaimed, This is a job for Superman. To a child, such things were most important, for these were the stuff of which dreams were born. The year was 1939, and Hitler's forces were just beginning to spread their terrifying lightning war across the face of Europe. The Second World War, however, was still very remote to the thousands of young Americans thrilling to the first issue of a new comic magazine devoted exclusively to the adventures of the man of tomorrow, Superman. It was in that very first issue that Superman's many fans were invited to become charter members of an exciting new club. Calling all red-blooded young Americans, proclaimed the center-spread announcement, how would you like to become a charter member of the only club devoted to strength, courage, and justice, Supermen of America? The reply came back by the thousands, a resounding yes. Eight months later, in the February 27, 1940 issue of Look, it was reported that 50,000 kids own certificates like this evidence that they belong to the Superman Club. In addition to their membership certificate, button, and code, DC offered their readers a little something extra. All members will receive special instructions from Superman on how to develop strength, courage, and agility, and how to protect yourself in times of danger. To the amazement of practically everyone at DC, The Superman Club soon required a full-time staff employee just to process the memberships and count the dimes. Quick to realize a good thing, DC followed with more clubs in the months ahead. In August of 1940, Max Gaines's All-American Line started the All-American Flying Club. Advertisements featuring Hop Harrigan, America's Ace of the Airways appeared prominently in Flash Comics, Sensation Comics, and All-Star. Hop Harrigan and his friends Tank Tinker and Prop Wash even plugged the new club in their own strip in All-American Comics, the flagship of the Gaines line. In addition to their regular membership kit, loyal members could qualify for a large, three-color felt emblem by signing up three of their friends. A few issues later, members of the All-American Flying Club were invited to join the American Observation Corps. For their dime, American Observation Corps members received a discount on the booklet, How to Defend Your Home, and the American Observation Corps pin. The handsome American Observation Corps pin, which is made out of soft pewter because this metal does not interfere with defense priorities, should be worn below the All-American Flying Club pin, just as Prop Wash and Tank Tinker are wearing theirs. The fantastic response to the clubs encouraged the All-American line to seek reader reaction to their new title, All-Star Comics. In the very first issue of All-Star, readers were asked which features they wanted left out and what substitutes they wanted in their place. The first 500 responses received free copies of the next issue of All-Star, and that same issue featured the outcome of the poll. As the result of your suggestions, we have included in this issue The Green Lantern and Johnny Thunder. And in our next issue, we are also going to include Dr. Fate, as these three features receive the most votes on the thousands of coupons sent in. The editors of the All-American line continued to encourage reader response, increasing the number of free copies to a thousand. Readers were asked which characters they wanted to see in their own books, Flash and Green Lantern, suggestions for the title of the new Flash Quarterly, All-Flash, replacements for departing J.S. Ayers' Green Lantern and Our Man, Dr. Midnight and Starman, and whether a female— Wonder Woman, should be permitted to join the Justice Society? A resounding yes. It seems amazing that the responses could be tabulated and published in the following issue. Not so, insists Shelley Mayer. Back then, I had lunch every day over at the engravers, and it was an easy matter to hold up a page right up until the last minute. The readers' responses gave us clues as to the direction we should be headed in and generally backed up our own impressions. Like a photographer with a photometer, you took a reading and then used your own judgment. In response to tremendous fan demand, All-Star Comics No. 13 announced the formation of a new club, the Junior Justice Society of America. Never before in our history has Uncle Sam needed the wholehearted support of every man, woman, and child in America as right now. In forming the Junior Justice Society at this time, we do so with the hope that every junior member will display the same spirit of cooperation and patriotism as shown by the regular and honorary members of the Justice Society of America in their fight for right and justice. The Junior Justice Society cost more than the other clubs, a whole 15 cents, to cover cost of mailing. But look what you got in return. 1. A beautiful silver-plated Junior Justice Society of America emblem. 2. A handsomely engraved Junior Justice Society membership certificate. 3. A secret Junior Justice Society of America code card based on Wonder Woman's knowledge of the Greek alphabet, which will enable you to decipher the secret code messages in each of the 13 codes, which would be published in All-Star Comics. 4. A U.S. Treasury Department 10-cent war-saving stamp album. 5. A four-page, four-color lithograph story, History of the Minutemen. 6. A Victory Bulletin. How to organize a victory club in your school. 7. And a 10-cent Treasury Department war-saving stamp to the first 1,000 charter members. With a bargain like that, the club had to be a runaway success. And it was. For the next few years, interest was so strong that the All-American line found that they, like the Superman Club required a full-time employee just to handle all the nickels and dimes arriving daily. The editorial staff added extra coins to the pile until they discovered that the coin counter was onto to their joke and was pocketing the extra silver. Eventually, the wartime shortages caught up to the Junior Justice Society of America, and the club had to be temporarily suspended. When it finally returned in All-Star No. 37, Junior Justice Society members appeared at the end of the lead story, helping the JSA defeat the Evil Injustice Gang. Where are they now? The Junior Justice Society of America and Hop Harrigan's All-American Flying Club disappeared with the cancellation of their parent titles. The Superman Club seems to have been lost in D.C.'s shuffle of editorial positions and duties in the mid-60s. The last Superman of America membership ad appeared in 1966, the last coded message a short time later. Will they ever return? D.C. Vice President Saul Harrison hopes so. I prepared a new membership kit for the Superman of America some time ago. But we lacked the facilities to put the plan into operation. I'd like to see the club return in conjunction with the upcoming Super DC convention, and the idea seems to have strong support throughout the office. Perhaps sometime soon, the Supermen of America will return, bigger and better than ever before. That was Badges, Buttons, and Secret Codes 2, by Anthony Tolan, originally published in The Amazing World of DC Comics Issue 8, which was delivered to mail orderers in late September of 1975. I myself would not read this issue until the spring of 1976, for I had just moved to Singapore at the time of publication, and would have to wait for my copies of The Amazing World of DC Comics to arrive in my comic book care packages sent by my Uncle Kenzo in the U.S. Of course, this piece in particular made me think of my uncle at first read. I had discovered, in the summer of 1974, that my Uncle Kenzo was a member of the Superman Club of America in 1940, when he was aged 11. He would have likely joined the Junior Justice Society of America when it was first promoted as well, except that was four months after my uncle, along with my father and my grandparents, were evacuated from their Californian hometown and housed in War Relocation Authority Centers four months after my uncle also lost his exclusive Superman Club membership kit, the button badge and secret code too, along with his early run of Superman and action comics, which both started with issue one, as well as almost all of his possessions in that evacuation. And what had brought up that conversation in the summer of 1974 was my asking about the slightly flaked Junior Justice Society metal pin and equally flaking cardboard secret code wheel that my uncle kept with some other memorabilia in the comic book storage backroom of his home. These originally belonged to a former Junior Justice Society member who lived in Uncle Kenzo's 1949 Idahoan neighborhood. A late teen who was heading off to college in another city, who once pledged in his youth to uphold the cause of justice and never be guilty of prejudice or discrimination against a fellow human being because of race, creed, or color, who outgrew all of his comics and didn't care whether his mother would throw them away or give them to, in his words, the Jap. Despite the glaring evidence of actual members not doing so, my uncle did believe in the ideals of the Junior Justice Society, at least the ideals as stated post-World War II, and thus he kept the badge and code, at least until he needed funds for his medical expenses later in life. Anthony Tolan closed his article with a mention of DC Comics possibly reviving the Superman Club in time for the Super DC Convention, which was a comic book convention hosted by DC Comics in New York City's Americana Hotel in end February 1976 and DC published a special edition of The Amazing World of DC Comics that was essentially an Ashcan-sized version of the fanzine that also doubled as an exclusive program for the event. My uncle actually attended the Super DC convention and managed to send me an extra copy of the program, which contained all new Amazing World content, as well as some signatures from some DC Comics professionals that I would never have had the opportunity to meet myself. But I digress. The point is that it would still be a few years before another DC Comic fan club would emerge, which was promoted by a rather lackluster advert that ran in various DC Comics which I was still receiving by care package from my Uncle Kenzo every three or four months while I was living in Singapore. This advert was essentially a large typewritten letter on DC Comics' letterhead announcing that applications were now being taken for 12 chapters of the DC Superstars Society. By mailing DC a self-addressed stamped envelope, one could receive an exclusive application form for a chapter devoted to Superman, or Batman, or Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Black Lightning, Shazam, The Green Arrow Black Canary Couple, The Justice League, The Justice Society, The Legion of Superheroes, or The War Heroes known as DC Battlestars. Despite the rather humdrum advert, the 14 going on 15 year old me was intrigued by the idea of a DC Comics fan club devoted to some of my favorite characters. So, in the next thank you letter I had written to my uncle, I asked him if he would please try to obtain application forms for the Flash, Green Lantern, and Justice League of America chapters of the DC Superstars Society. My uncle, Always a generous man, as well as a youthful comic book fan at hot, had done as I'd asked, while sending his own requests for the Batman, Superman, and War Hero chapters. Surprisingly, he had only received two application forms back, the ones for Batman and the Justice League of America. These forms were four-page folded brochures that included a quiz about the respective chapter's characters, as well as a mail-order coupon to cut out and send with $4 to receive an exclusive membership kit, which would include a certificate, membership card with secret code, cloth patch, an iron-on t-shirt transfer, discount coupons for future issues of The Amazing World of DC Comics as well as regular DC titles, and what I had found to be the most exciting item, a giant 17-inch by 22-inch poster of numerous DC Comics characters illustrated by the ever-illustrious José Luis García López, praised be his name. My Uncle Kenzo forwarded the Justice League application to me completely intact stating in the enclosed letter that he had made a photostat of the order coupon at his work, which he cut out and mailed with a $4 check to obtain the exclusive membership kit on my behalf. A membership kit which had never arrived, nor did the Batman membership kit for which my uncle had sent. All that was mailed to my uncle was an $8 refund. I had wondered if my uncle using photostatted coupons had made the offer invalid, not realizing until decades later that the D.C. Superstars Society was one of many publication victims of what was notoriously known as the D.C. Implosion of 1978. At any rate, I and my uncle were disappointed. I was really looking forward to receiving that poster. However, I would be pleasantly surprised to actually receive said poster in another care package sent by my uncle to my new UK address a couple years later. The poster was enclosed in a large white envelope stamped with the four-color emblem of the Superman Club. It seemed that DC Comics had salvaged the Superman chapter of the defunct DC Superstars Society into a new fan club exclusively devoted to the Man of Steel. I had actually seen adverts for the Superman Club in some of my DC Comics, but given what happened with the DC Superstars Society, I didn't believe them. My uncle, however, had ordered a kit for each of us. In addition to the poster... The Superman Club membership kit contained an official membership card and certificate, a secret code, a book cover, an iron-on transfer, a copy of the Daily Planet Club newsletter with upcoming Superman and DC Comics news, a welcome letter with an offer to enroll in other Club chapters for other DC Comics superheroes, another attempt to revive the DC Superstars Society Club that I believe was never realized and a special envelope with which to send DC your next fan letter so it would be given, quote, special handling to the editorial staff. The Superman fan club did return, bigger and better than before. At least 17 by 24 inches big. The poster was beautiful. I had taped it onto my bedroom wall immediately, and admired it for a number of years before it would eventually meet the fate of other fan posters, becoming tattered, torn, and eventually lost. My uncle, meanwhile, ordered his club packet just for the poster, which he had framed. The other items in my uncle's Superman club kit were eventually given out to the kids who lived in his early 1980s neighborhood. I believe he actually created a t-shirt with the iron-on as a birthday gift to one. Interestingly enough, at least to me, I had actually retained all of the non-poster items of my Superman club kit in the original envelope, which I had stored in the same box as my Superman comic books. Eventually, my uncle had married, and suddenly found that he had less wall space in his home for himself so he had taken the poster out of the frame and stored it folded with his Superman comic books. When Uncle Kenzo died a few years ago, he had bequeathed his remaining comic book collection to me, along with his copy of my long-lost poster. So my Superman Club membership kit was once again complete. Thank you for listening and I hope you have enjoyed this brief glimpse into the amazing world of DC Comics. Please feel free to share your thoughts on this program in the show notes page on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Perhaps there will be another opportunity for me to share more of my favorite pieces in a future episode of FW Presents. Until then, be sure to tune in to my upcoming antiques and misadventures with The Legion of Zoom in the second season of the Done and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Thank you again for listening, and goodbye. This has been Fire and Water Presents The Amazing World of DC Comics. Produced by Professor Zoom Productions in association with the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Sound editing by Isamu Hideaki Yukinori and Adrian Zett. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Zoom Yukonori can also be found at zoom yukinoriblogspotcom With the exception of the Amazing World Transcripts, the views expressed on this show belong solely to the host, who is not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Fire and Water Presents The Amazing World of DC Comics is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire & Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com fwpodcasts.